we need people who are working on these technologies to acknowledge the need to express why this technology as it scales is going to leave our world, our cities, our country better than it was before. And if we don't have that, then I don't know why our leaders in state capitals or in city halls or in the federal government should accommodate the spread of the technology. And I'll be even I'll go a step further and say, I don't think that argument has been convincingly made yet. Uh, and I hope that I hope that it will be. And if my article sort of like stings a little bit to certain people, that's okay if it leads to a focus on issues that I, I, I believe are really essential. Hello and welcome to the Atomicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am uh, Elon Musk's cyberbully. <laughs> I'm Alex Roy, the director of special operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show, and the founder of the Human Driving Association, which may seem ironic, but in fact is not, as will be demonstrated in the conversation with one of my favorite people. I consider him a personal friend. Um, one of the most, no, no, not one of. When people ask about thought leadership in the sector and they look at getting folks from consulting companies to come speak, they made a mistake because what they should be doing is asking David Zipper to come. Welcome, David Zipper, to the Atonicast. <laughs> it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Kirsten. It's good to be what, back. Was that a suitably magnanimous and generous and, and sweet introduction? Yeah, bordering on embarrassing. So <laughs> let just, us, yeah. let us the, proceed. Yeah. I realized this is actually my third time on the Autonicast. Do we get? Oh, you got, you, you're going to get the third timer's jacket. I was just going to wonder. Is I want swag like Saturday Night Live. You know, I want some sort of swag when you come back and host it a certain number of times. So this is like a, you know, third time's the charm. It's kind of exciting for me. So I, I look forward to that, Kirsten, for sure. Um, over here, over here at the Autonicast, you're going to get a, a nice slap on the back. Maybe in a high five. Cool, cool glass of tap water. A slap in the face is the fourth appearance. <laughs> Let us begin. So, so we're and there's a little embarrassment on on our end as well because we we kind of made the faux pas of of starting to discuss a piece that David wrote uh, in the Washington Post without him, and and I kind of realized like as we were doing it, like we should really have him here to allow him to to flesh it out. Having written a number of of op eds myself, I know. You know, you really have to kind of pick and choose what you can get in there. You can't necessarily flesh out all the arguments uh, all the way. And um, so, so David, let's just start. I'm, and again, we've discussed this a little bit already, but but can you just sort of summarize like the the piece, what what you were going for, what the inspiration maybe thinking behind it was, uh, what you're trying to accomplish with that? Sure, I'm happy to. And maybe should I actually introduce myself for what I actually <laughs> do? Even though I love Alex's <laughs> intro, he didn't actually relate to anything that I actually do professionally. Um, so I, I am a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, where my work focuses on the future of cities and transportation and technology. And I write a lot. I'm a contributing writer at Bloomberg City Lab, and I've written about technology, cities, and transportation and platforms like Slate and the Washington Post and the Atlantic and so forth and so on. That's how I know you crew for a while now. My background for what, and this maybe is useful for folks who are listening. My background is is partly with working with startups, which I've done extensively 
including on the investment side, and also working with policymakers, working in City Hall in, in Washington, D.C., and in the Bloomberg administration. So with that aside, um, yes, thank you, Ed, for inviting me. To the, is this the first time you guys have had two conversations about a single article? I think so. Uh, yeah, three times, three times on the show, two times discussing one article. Uh, you know, I think this this almost speaks louder than than Alex's, uh, uh, you know, eloquent introduction. Well, except for except for that, there is like just the long running that we can't get through an entire episode without mentioning Tesla or some kind of story related to Tesla. So besides that, I think yes. Okay. Okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, no, it was, uh, it was a little bit surreal listening to you guys discuss the article in the Washington Post um, while I was muttering to myself while jogging in Washington, D.C., while uh, where I live. So thanks for having me on to share thoughts around it. Um, the, uh, the, the motivation of it really was that I feel like the hype with self-driving cars was coming back. Um, you guys have, I think, discussed how at CES... In January, you know, GM and Mobileye and Geely talked about the, they made promises, frankly, to be able to sell self-driving cars by the middle of the decade. And there were a number of articles in the press saying, oh, all the, the you know, we're, we're, we're past the trough of disillusionment. Now everyone's getting, the hype cycle is returning with self-driving cars. And I felt like I didn't see a lot of skepticism or even questioning or awareness about whether this was a good thing or would be a good thing if it actually comes to pass. So, and this is actually now responding to one of the points that you raised in your comments a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, Ed. I deliberately focused in my article in the Washington Post in February on self-driving cars and not on other uses of the technology, such as, say, trucking, where I think that there's frankly a better argument for the use case. So, but with self-driving cars, um, you know, it's it, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I I guess maybe the way to explain the core of my argument and Alex, maybe I'll use you, something you said. And when you discussed it a week ago as, as a backdrop, you summarized the article, <laughs> which I encourage people to just look at the Washington post said, does anybody want these things? Where's the demand? Even if they work, does anyone care? And what's the point? And respectfully, my friend, uh, Alex Roy, I would say that actually I, my point is exactly the opposite of how you summarized it, because I actually do think that individuals would want to buy a self-driving car for themselves. It's so convenient and cool. The problem is that if a lot, every time you do that, you create externality effects on society by creating congestion in cities and driving more. This is something called the Jevons paradox, where as things get easier, we do more of it. Uh, and that's going to lead to more driving, even in, in an electric autonomous car that leads to more emissions. So my argument and what I sort of walk through in the in, in the piece and say, look, we're all capitalists. Um, you know, we all believe in markets. But if you're looking to the government to pave the way for self-driving cars, which these companies are to change regulations at the state and the federal level, then you need to have a clear argument for why that would be in the in society's best interest. And self-driving car companies, I would argue, or I did argue in that piece, haven't made that case. And until they do. We should not be bending over backwards to adjust our, our rules to accommodate them. Yeah, pause there. That, that's a very nice summary. Does anyone object to me Go responding in. now? So you and I agree on pretty much all, all, all or almost all points. So let's unpack what you just said. So, yes, there has been a lot of 
Now, there has been a resurgence of hype recently, which upsets me. <laughs> and um, from companies that you have been kind enough to name. And and what I think is happening, and it's it's a conflation of ter- both terminology and, and strategy, is that the hype around self-driving self-driving cars self-driving itself being a very vague vague product as we don't they're not really referring to the product they're just saying we're going to offer self-driving cars by 2024 25 already a 5 to 6 to 7 year delay from original hype cycle promises and the, i believe that these the return of this hype and these promises is intended not necessarily to guarantee the arrival of a product but to hype up valuations in anticipation of IPOs and and um, you know public market events, and that there is a I think there's a clear dividing line uh, between the companies that will exploit ignorance around the terminology and the technology and what the products will be to hype up their stock now or soon versus companies who are honest and by honest it generally means saying nothing by refusing to enter a new hype cycle. That's my that's what I would say about the, for your first statement, um, and secondly. Uh, I would also argue that self-driving cars, when you narrow down laser and focus on them as an issue, let's be clear, you're referring to private ownership of a vehicle that can drive itself without a, the, the, the customer in the driver's seat. The customer themselves can be not in the driver's seat. And that is something that one company has promised for years, and Ed has made a career out of deconstructing their claims, and other companies have um, implied they will be able to offer in the future, and that is the new cycle. And I, I think that these very same companies that have been intimidated and upset by Tesla are now trying to duplicate the Tesla hype playbook. And distinguishing between the the products and the hype, which sometimes are the same, uh, and the timelines, which are never line up with the promises, is really essential. I think you have actually, and I'll, I'll give you credit here, you have distinguished between one subset of these things, but not necessarily all of them. The reason I, I this matters to me is because five years ago, I was saying pretty much exactly what you were saying with less information and more speculation. And today, I work for one of the companies working this technology, a company that is not build cars and not attempting to build cars, uh, that is in the sector and is and so, and I and I took that position, and I rarely talk about my employer on the show, specifically because they stood in opposition to the behavior of the very companies you are rightfully going after now. So I would hope that you, and I'm done now, will double or triple down on the clarity you brought to selecting self-driving cars, cars quote unquote, as the problem in as you make further arguments down this road. Is that fair? I think it's fair. Um. Well, I guess what I would, what I would most like to see is that you have, you know, you have a lot of people listen to this podcast who work in autonomous vehicle companies. And if there's one message from the article that, that I, I, I or this conversation, I hope they take away is that take it as a personal responsibility to articulate how the world becomes better when your product scales. Because I see that like, it's just simply saying it's cool. It's going to be so cool. Or saying like, hey, look, we're going to end 90% plus of crashes is not good enough. Um, and I think that uh, we've given 
that, let's put it this way. I think that companies in the AV space that are able to articulate what their value prop is in a very clear way will have an advantage and they'll frankly not have people like me dinging them, to be honest. So, so Alex, yeah, there are a lot of worse actors out there than the company that you work for, but I frankly haven't seen any company, including those full of friends and nice people or well-intentioned people that have really done, in my view, a good job of making clear why their scaled technology leaves the world better as opposed to worse. So uh, that all that all makes a, a a ton of sense. I think you're right. I, I think the line there is is a little can be a little vague sometimes between you know uh, make you know exactly what you're saying, describing how your product makes the world better at scale versus versus hype. Like these two things can bleed into each other, obviously a little bit. Um, I think, and, and I think the way you describe it, like like focused on the self-driving car piece of it, because I, I think you're absolutely right. Like it is important to distinguish self-driving cars from, from AVs. And I think like to the extent that I still like ha- have a few issues with, with the piece, that's kind of still where it comes down to is, and, and I hate that like so much of AV stuff comes down to terminology stuff um, because you do, you do say like AVs and self-driving cars. I see AV as like a, a umbrella term where self-driving cars are a specific thing, right? It's you own a car as a private individual um, and, it, and it drives itself. Um, and I feel like that that's not always super clear that that distinction is, is always being made. And in part also because, you know, the way you frame the argument, you're not really explicitly saying like, hey, there are better opportunities for this technology than others. You're kind of like, should we, should we be messing with this technology at all? And in fact, you do kick some dust at, at some of the other, like, like the robotaxi use case saying, well, people don't want to share them, which, you know, I would say, sure. Yeah, there is some evidence that people don't want to share rides. Um, and, and we've seen that you cite, you cite your sources, right. But like, you cite that's something himself. we have to, that's, that's something we have to overcome if we want people to take transit as well. Right. Which you do see as like a viable solution. So I do, I see a little bit of like, of like, you know, beating up the, the, the self-driving car scenario, which I think is, is not only like, you know, well done, but, but totally appropriate uh, in part also because by the way, and, and this is one of the issues here too, is that the companies that are saying that they're going to sell self-driving cars haven't really said what that means exactly. They've just sort of said it's self-driving. So, so we have Some to speculate have a little it. bit about this, but, but I guess what I object to is, is just sort of that, that, that idea because, and, and this is something I really tried to do while I was at PAVE and, and will continue to try and do is to like show people like this technology is an opportunity for people with all kinds of backgrounds and value systems and beliefs. And, and it frustrates me when it's like, okay, this form of this technology, this potential future for this technology is bad and therefore kind of reject all of it. Where instead of saying like this, this potential future for this technology is bad. And therefore, like if your values are healthy cities and, 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 you know, sort of holistic transportation systems, um, you know, fight for the, or, or advocate for these, you know, futures for this technology, right? Don't, don't write off the whole technology, find the future for this tech, the potential future for this technology that, that accords with your values and fight for that. And it just didn't feel like the, this piece was in that same vibe, but, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm misreading you. Hey, Dave, can I crack a joke before you make your case? Just one. Go ahead. Some of these companies out there who are in the hype cycle, it's like if you go back and read um, some like magazines and like from like the 20s or 30s, and it's like 
if you just do a find replace on like their quote unquote self-driving product, a personally owned autonomous vehicle, if you find a place for that and replace with personal jetpacks, <laughs> that's pretty much the level of nonsense that BS are spitting out. And it's because there's no universe in which you want everyone to own a personal jetpack. Like cities would be worse. You know, you could say some people, some kids, teenage boys, would be like, "I'd love their personal jetpack. It'd be amazing. My life would be infinitely better. I get to work so fast." But if everybody had one, it would suck. And that is effectively the argument some of these companies are making without the sucking part. And you're coming in and saying we should, not everyone should have personal jetpacks. But the companies that are trying to make, say, a commercial cargo plane should exist because it has an obvious value at scale and it's kind of i mean that is if i were not on the corporate side of the fence today and i was in your shoes i'd be launching humorous assaults on these companies um based on historical precedent half of which is completely true questions like throughput the quality of cities and curb space and um pedestrian safety we've had this debate before and the cities lost mostly they lost so we should have this as long as it's an honest conversation. Well, and that's actually a point I was going to make. That's actually a really serious one. Um, looking back at, at history, which is that, you know, like I, I come from cities, right? You guys know this. Like I've written a Me lot, too. worked in city government. I've written a lot about ride hail and scooters and and the role of cars in cities. Like that's like cities are sort of my people or the city cities leaders and city residents. I feel like I a kinship with. And. For those who study history, you got to recognize there's still some PTSD with a lot of urban leaders about what happened 100 years ago when cars arrived in cities. In the 1920s, we had these battles that ultimately led to all kinds of sacrifices being made to accommodate car speed, such as the creation of jaywalking, such as the uh, elimination or reduction in sidewalks to create extra street space. And then you get into really tragic stuff in the 30s and 40s and 50s, where you had entire neighborhoods, especially African-American neighborhoods and Latino neighborhoods that were wiped out, like Overtown in Miami, where you live, uh, Alex, just decimated to create urban freeways. So, And these were disasters for cities, and they were done to accommodate the new, trendy, hypeful technology, the personal automobile. Now, you know... Like that is not something like nobody at Argo or Tesla, for that matter, had had anything to do with that. Nobody was around when when that happened, really, as far as I can tell. But there is a legacy there. There's a history there, and I and I I will, um, you know, it's 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 something that I think that, that I hope that everybody who works in the AV space takes seriously and keeps in mind, and recognizes that when cities are skeptical when suggestions are made about how cities might evolve to accommodate autonomous technology, you're going to get some pushback and some of it's going to be quite angry. And it's not your fault, but if you haven't already, I recommend reading, if you're in this space, to read a book called Fighting Traffic by Peter Norton, a historian at the University of Virginia. I ta- I, this book was very influential on me, but explains just how disastrous the arrival of the automobile was for cities across the United States. So uh, that is all true. And fascinating. But there's another, there's a third dimension to what's occurring right now with autonomous vehicle technology developers, which is some of them are taking an absolutely top down approach. <laughs> and a great example of that is a top down and hypey approach, which is we're going to build this tech. We don't care where it goes, how it's used. You should buy it. Let's see, let, let the chips fall, which 
meanwhile, on the other side, they have, you know, uh, lobbyists making sure that there's absolutely no, zero friction to propagating these, these things everywhere and duplicated the playbook that you're describing. And then there's the other companies. I work for one of them. I don't know who the other ones are, but I know there's some good actors out there who are literally have a bottoms up approach, which is there are people on the ground in every city where they intend to operate. Why do I live in Miami? Because I go and spend a lot of time in Overtown. And I think that in order to, I think it's, I'm not the only one who thinks this, in order to responsibly and positively do good, well, to do good anywhere these things are deployed, you have to not tell people, this is coming, you're going to love it, end of story. You have to ask them. How would you use this if it was here? How might we feather it into your community in such a way that you like it? And what would you do if we made it available to you at scale? And that is why I work for the company that I do, because it's exactly what they're doing. Um, if I can step in for a moment, after listening to you all, uh, there is something to be said, though, as one who has covered startups for years now, that even with the most responsible actors, and this is just general, not just with autonomous vehicle technology, that there are unintended consequences that no one realized would happen once the technology became ubiquitous and widely adopted. And, and that's almost impossible to predict. And it could be a positive outcome, but it could also be a negative outcome. And ride hailing is a perfect example of that. Um, there was no, there was certainly a lot of hype and promises around sharing, but I do believe that based on my conversations with some of those companies early on, that they really did believe that, that people would share. Like it was just a, a complete miscalculation. But I, 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 wait, I used to say miscalculation. We, we know the but result. I, right? I think it was a deliberate, it was deliberate uh, failure or intellectual dishonesty or laziness for failing to understand the history of prior so-called solutions. Sure. They should have probably had, uh, you know, each company probably should have had a team of social scientists studying what, what was probably the likely outcome. And I'm not saying that that's happening in the AV world, although I do think that there are many companies that are not doing this and there are companies that are, um, but truly understanding how people and cities will use or um, how it will, how this technology will fold into a city. Um, there should be a lot of effort put into that now, because if you make something truly amazing and that works, people will use it. Um, and if you haven't anticipated how that will change a city or how people live their lives, then that's where the fault lies, right? That's where the, the big mistake is going to be made. Kirsten, you're, you're, I think I agree with you. I think that the people at Uber and Lyft did think that, pe that, that people in cities were going to share those rides on Uber pool and Lyft line. And, um, you know, it turned out that it was an, it was a weird and inferior product. It's kind of weird if you think about it, you're, it's a product where if you use Uber pool, you were like hoping to not get matched with anyone. You're hoping to not actually have the actual product. I was and, one of those people. <laughs> yeah, we all were. And if you did, you just wanted the cheaper, cheaper price and you know, you might be next to someone who smells or you might be taken out of your way or not. It just, it wasn't real. It actually, in, in a weird way, public transit had superiority over it in a lot of ways because it was more more reliable. Um, I wrote an article about this a year ago, sort of questioning, applying those lessons to autonomous vehicles. This was in City Lab 
in 2021, basically arguing there's really no evidence that people want to share a quote unquote luxury transportation vehicle. Uh, and that's uh, and so Kirsten, I agree with you. I think that AV companies would be wise to learn from this. But I'd also say this is part of why I get really skeptical about um, or concerned, I guess I should say, about how autonomous vehicles for personal use or for individual travel uh, really get deployed. Because I've, we've, gone, we've talked about the problems of congestion and environmental degradation from people owning their own vehicle. And if the alternative is shared, we just don't have any good evidence that people are going to do that yet. I'd love to hear an AV company come out and convince me that they figured this out, but I haven't seen it yet. And so I'm left with thinking, well, shared people just don't want and personal they may want, but it's a disastrous societally. This is a big concern. Like well, this hang on. is why I wrote the article. Hang on, but you're, 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 you're flattening the issue again because there's, there's two kinds of shared, right? There's shared rides and then there's shared fleets, right? These are two separate things. And so like, and, and so I think the point that Alex was making in when he says that that Uber should have anticipated the impact that they ended up having, it was because their model was based on not owning their own fleet, right? And their model their model was on subsidizing ride, like trying to build scaling, right? They, they were blitz scaling. And to do that, they incentivized as many people as possible to get out, even buy a new car. And and go out and 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 you know even subprime financing them and and go out and and be available because their key metric for for making their product viable was how quickly when you pull out the app and hail a ride does that ride come and pick you up right and 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 their incentives are entirely weighted on that side and there's no like they're not bearing the operating cost of that fleet and so the inefficiencies of of over optimizing for that pickup time is is not born by them right it's born by everyone else in the form of congestion and pollution right uh, and and well and by their investors in the form of subsidies obviously because it's not a sustainable model and and that's kind of a different thing but with the robo taxi fleet right and this is the argument that that I think is getting lost here you know you have especially for the first couple of generations you have really really expensive vehicles so so all of the economic incentives are to keep that fleet as small as possible and keep it uh, operating, uh, you know, as as you know, uh, basically u- utilization, right? Even um, uh, uh, Ashley Nunes, we've had on the show, who's a really um, strong critic of the economics of robo taxis. Like, really, if you boil down a lot of his criticism, what it comes down to is 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 this that you keep that fleet as small as possible, and 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 that that utilization rates are the entire key to making robo taxi business work. So. What, what, what do you, you know? And yet, and yet again, you, you, you seem skeptical in the piece about about robo taxis as being a good thing. I'm curious, sort of, how how that fits into your your view of this. Yeah, I, I think of robo taxis as well. First of all, our the closest example we have is with Ridehail, which has been pretty much a barely mitigated disaster for cities. <laughs> but again, they have fundamentally different economic models, right? Do you, do you, do you acknowledge that? Um. I don't know. I I think it's an interesting point you're making. I don't want to get out too far ahead of my skis on that one because I'd want to actually really understood what your uh, your friend or, or colleague was articulating. Um, but maybe that's the kind of of sort of vision that we need is someone to basically say like, look, here's how we've controlled for the downsides, which are real. And by the way, I would love to hear a lot more AV companies acknowledge the risks of the Jevons paradox and induce demand and more driving because. I feel like a lot of people just are like they put they just put fingers in their ear and go la 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 la. 
Um, but if that, if that's a model that could work and I'd want to research it or understand it better then yeah, I would acknowledge that that's the case. In fact, I'll even go a step further, Ed, you know, one of the most thoughtful, I got a lot of people calling me a Luddite or stupid or various curse words after the Washington post article. Um, but one of the more, sometimes there was some thoughtful critiques and actually one of the, one of the most interesting ones I thought was, um, there's a couple of people who said, David, your points are well taken about problems of, of autonomous vehicles in cities, but in rural areas, you don't have to worry about congestion. You have longer trips. You're more likely to have people who are um, sort of are, are, may have some kind of substance issue because they've been drinking or whatever else. The safety benefits are probably greater and the downside risks are less. And I thought that was actually a really interesting argument. A couple of people made this, including some pretty senior former NHTSA officials, um, and I think that's really interesting. And what, what I was struck by is I never hear AV companies arguing for that. It, yeah. I don't hear that. You? Well, I, I mean, it? when I was at PAVE, we, we just did a, a panel about the University of Iowa's rural shuttle program. We, we've done, we just recently did panel. I, I'm not there anymore. I'm, uh, but, but we that's recently did panels point. where we had, you know, urbanists sort of talking about how exactly like Alex says, how to center this technology on the needs of cities rather than, so I think some of that discourse is there. It's not the companies themselves saying it. I was definitely, you know, trying to get those conversations to happen because I fundamentally agree with you here. But again, I think the, 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 the question is, right. Do we want people to be writing this technology off or do we need people like you to be engaged with this technology to say some of these futures for this technology are better than others. And that like, just sort of saying like, let's just ignore this technology is not really a viable option. I, I don't think I, well, maybe, and I know we have other stuff we want to talk about. Maybe what I'll say is I feel like I am involved in the discussion. That's frankly like why I'm here with you guys now writing the article that I did. What I would turn it around and, and, and simply, and, and I would turn around and say, we need people who are working on these technologies to acknowledge the need to express why this technology as it scales is going to leave our world, our cities, our country better than it was before. And if we don't have that, then I don't know why our leaders in state capitals or in city halls or in the federal government should accommodate the spread of the technology. And I'll be even I'll go a step further and say, I don't think that argument has been convincingly made yet. Uh, and I hope that I hope that it will be. And if my article sort of like stings a little bit to certain people, that's okay if it leads to a focus on issues that I, I, I believe are really essential. So I love that statement, David, because I'm, it, it'll bring me back to what I originally said I want to expand on. There are companies, I believe, Tesla has very clearly stated why they think their products can make the world better. And it's, I think it's pretty clear to anyone who understands trans, transit and urban design, urban planning theory, you and others, uh, Alyssa Walker is another one, that if you look at exactly what they've said, they their product is and what they think it can do, that it's hilarious. It's absurd. It's absurd. And and you, one can say the same thing about the boring company and other things. Um, however, the the other companies, the companies that have not necessarily made their case clearly, um, I think I can't speak for all of them. I think some of them are doing so out of a, an abundance of caution because the to anyone who understands the issues, the statements by the bad actors are so absurd and have been so consistently deconstructed by people who understand it. 
my colleagues on this very show, you, Alyssa Walker, and many others, that um, the risk of sticking one's head out before the bad actors have been fully debunked and shown you know, for not understanding the real issues and being thrown under the, under the bus with them is really high and endangers the good actors. And it is very tough to for someone who's honest, an individual or a company, to stick their neck out when the sea of nonsense is so deep and wide um, until it's truly bottomed out. The hype cycle is truly bottomed out. And, and the resurgence of this hype has been fueled by actors who had a choice. They could have kept quiet or said the right thing and chose to say nothing. But instead, they chose to just duplicate the playbook of the bad actors. And that's what's happening right now. Uh, that's unfortunate. Unfortunate. But I think this has to play out a little longer. I think there needs to be an, a, a second set of broken promises shown to be broken <laughs> before we'll see. No, I, I'm sorry, but it's true. And those those broken those uh, those those unrealistic claims are resurging, and I think they have to be shown to be false um, well, I, I before the survivor is last. And I'm, so I'm sorry, Kirsten. My last sentence would be: I've said on this show for five four years, follows this show that the the um, MNA is going to be harsh and fast, and it's been harsher and faster than I could have guessed. And I think it's going to be even harsher and faster in the next twelve to eighteen months for other reasons, which is that. You're, there's the political events in the world outside self-driving pertaining to supply chains, Taiwan, China, Russia, the events in Ukraine are, as we record this, changing the playing field and the battlefield and the playing field of business and technology so rapidly that companies that cannot come to the table with products and or honesty made it to them are going away soon, 12, 18 months. Um, I think we're at this point too, where the next, you had mentioned the next broken promises and the next grouping of broken promises will likely involve, um, city, state or county officials. And, and, and here's why, um, when technology reaches a point where companies are, um, seemingly successful, there's something that matters oftentimes, and David, you can disagree with me or not, um, oftentimes matters more than anything else, which is creating jobs. And so what we've seen with, for example, um, I've seen it in the state of Arizona with Nikola and Lucid and some other companies, uh, once they, even before the technology is totally known, um, we've seen the same thing in Nevada officials jumping at the chance to potentially give incentives and attract these new companies to come set up shop and hire and, um, you know, bring help build this new economy. And that can be all well and good, but when it comes to AV technology and also even promises around electrification, there's just a lack of knowledge with a lot of elected officials about the technology. And so they're not even in a position to be asking the right questions to push back against the bad actors. The bad actors and good actors are all mixed together. So you'll see these experiments, I predict, um, being played out over the next few years where good actors will come in and you know will be like, I want to build a factory to create this new vehicle with my manufacturing partner. And everyone will be overjoyed. It'll work out well. But there's going to be just as many bad actors in which those products will fail. And that will be another instance of the technology sort of 
being pushed back or getting a bad name as a result of too many bad actors being out there um, and being treated the same. So it's not even about like the use case of the technology, but it's another layer that I've seen happen repeatedly, like with clean tech, for example, back in 2008 and forward. And I'm seeing again now in the transportation sector. It's interesting. So I'm just trying to think, I'm trying to think through this. Give me an example of what you think could happen in the year to give me a make-believe company that has an incident of the sort that you're worried about. Well, I mean, I don't have to use a make-believe company. I can use a real one. I believe Faraday Future was going to build um, a gigantic factory in Nevada and that never happened. Um, and, and there's a reason there's, you know, there's a reason why it didn't. It wasn't necessarily that there were bad actors, although there was a lot of, lot of, lot of red flags and issues, but there was so much um, interest in creating jobs that I think some of the like just lack of knowledge and like anyone who took a little bit of a peek under the hood would never have approved that project. Yeah, this is so I used to do economic development work for before I got in deep into transportation. I don't know if you guys know that it's it's a part, it feels like another career at this point. Um, and I think in, in general terms, I agree with you, Kirsten, there is it's remarkable how unrigorous economic development is. Like there's just no real, um, like they, they throw numbers around like jobs created and you're right about that, but there's no sort of looking after the fact to see like, did we actually achieve what we said we, we wanted to achieve with a given project? And there's, uh, the, the, the ROIs in retrospect are almost always terrible when, a state or a city bends over backwards to accommodate a new technology because you always want the ribbon cutting, right? To say, hey, look, we brought this company here. And there's been a number of instances where this has already screwed up transportation. Um, you talked about Faraday. If I'm remembering this right, um, the, you know, the, uh, good, the, 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 one of the originals, Anthony Lewandowski, back when he was at Uber, came to, am I remembering this right? He came to Nevada and got Nevada to change all of its, its rules around self-driving cars like a decade ago because he promised to bring Uber's uh, testing there. And then he eventually, then they changed all the rules as he wanted. And then he was like, yeah, never mind. I'm going to, uh, to Arizona instead. So this stuff is just a mess. I can like, it looks like Ed is signaling that I'm, I'm, I'm right about this. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. have in my, behind me, I have two Nevada autonomous vehicle license plates. Uh, these are real, real license plate. This one was actually issued. The other one's a sample, uh, but they created special license plates for autonomous vehicles in like 2016 or something like that. And like, and like this one, uh, I'm sorry, the sample one that I have is, is for privately owned AVs and they've obviously never been issued because there's, there's no such thing. And so I think that it is, Nevada is a great example of the hype running away with it. Um, yeah, I mean, but, like just to, just like the Faraday piece, um, you know, that was supposed to be a billion dollar plant. I think that was in 2017 ish. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, by 2019, I want to say they were selling, they, they, they were, they were basically folding the project. And I think in the last couple of years, maybe 2019, I want to say they sold the plot of land that was in North Las Vegas for like 40 million bucks or something. So, so that's, it, that's just one, and th we've seen this happen. Um, I mean, 
we could also look at like Wisconsin, what happened with the Foxconn plant. And that's, you know, there's lots of lots of examples of promises when it comes to jobs. I think all of a sudden that's all that elected officials hear. And when like lots of jobs aren't on the table, maybe they pay a little bit closer attention to the technology. But that's just been what I've covered time and time again. Like it's a repeated process and there doesn't seem to be, um, I mean, to me, there's like a great consulting business to be had in educating elected officials about AVs and helping them distill like what is good and bad technology. Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You say like distill what's good and bad technology. I actually would start at a slightly different point, Kirsten. Um, and this is something I wrote with the Harvard Kennedy School, where I'm a, a visiting fellow, I wrote a, a, a policy brief about how to run technology transportation pilots for city officials and for transit agencies. And I mean, this is not rocket science, but you'd be amazed how seldom, maybe you guys wouldn't be, but a lot of people are amazed how seldom cities and transit agencies, when they have a new technology, how seldom they have, have a hypothesis for how it might actually make their city or their service better or more efficient. Or, or help them achieve equity goals or emissions reductions, like having those ex-ante hypotheses that you can then test with data is something that should happen far, far more often than it does. Because frankly, I don't really care whether, or let me put it this way, I care less whether the Department of Transportation in a given city knows everything about LIDAR and radar and 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 this this package versus that package than I do that they're able to step forward and say credibly, like, this is what we're interested in achieving with this technology. And we have a way of collecting data and validating that data. And we're going to hold accountable those companies whose technologies we're piloting to see if we're getting closer or further away from it. Okay, that so, is what I'd like oh, to I have, a, I have a question, uh, David, w- which cities do you feel have done a better job or a good job defining those? So it's a great question. And um, I, it, it changes because you have new administrations that come in, right, with new leaders. And so, so it's sort of like the, the, the leading edge moves, if you will. But a city that's been consistently very strong is Boston. Uh, Boston was one of the first cities in the country, one of the first two along with Philadelphia to have any kind of chief innovation officer. There it's called the Office of New, new Urban Mechanics a really groundbreaking team. And they basically are in charge of figuring out, they're sort of like the 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 um, the innovation arm of the city. And they figure out when new technologies are suggested to the city, what are we trying to achieve? They put out RFIs, requests for information for things like e-cargo bikes to see how the city might be able to accommodate it. They've done projects around AVs with, with Newtonomy back in the day, actually. Uh, this was a few years ago. Um, and interestingly, one thing I like what they did, they got so tired of, of, of well, they, maybe that's not the right way to put it. They noticed a pattern of startup founders and, and, and uh, executives pitching them without really understanding how a city works or what they would respond to. So they actually put out a smart city handbook that's free. It's still on the website. They basically say, look, before you pitch us, have answers to these questions. And to be honest, if you are working in transportation and you think you need something from a city to scale, I would encourage you to go find that. It's the city of Boston's, pretty sure it's called the Smart City Handbook. Um, it's the, And I, I think it was a really smart way to go about it. So I think Boston's doing a good job with it, Alex. Um, 
I'd put them first. There's a few other cities that I've respected a lot. We can talk more about that, but I'd, I'd let's just say Boston. <laughs> so I think like you're absolutely right that uh, like cars and, and car culture like really does uh, like uh, define how a lot of people look at this uh, technology. And I think if you look at like Tesla's success with full self-driving uh, and success, I mean, financial success, not technological success. It, it's not successful because it's plausible. It's successful because people want it to be true. And so I think definitely you're right in identifying that like if left to its own advices, this technology will drift towards self-driving cars. And there are, you know, a lot of bad outcomes to that. But I think that like both both pro car people and anti-car people kind of allow uh, the the car paradigm to to sort of overly sort of shape their views on on this stuff. And um, I think like one of the things I've, I'm really passionate about is trying to help people understand that, like, that's not inevitable. Right. That 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 there are other ways to use this, this technology that are not simply car culture. And I feel like there's so many people who are dismissive. And that's why I think your piece is really thoughtful and good. And you're absolutely right. Like this industry needs to be kind of like, you know, written. And, and I think like the fact that, that the industry needs public trust is a, is a fulcrum that gives the public a lot of leverage on this technology. And so I just like, for me, I, I really, um, it'd be interesting to see like, more urbanist to me sort of say like, okay, what is the future that we want for this rather than just what, what do we not want? Well, I mean, Ed, you, you've said this to me several times before, like I you said to me, or you've tweeted it, like you want to see urbanists get involved with AV discussion, say, well, what is the version that you want? And, you know, urbanists are sort of my people to a degree. Um, and, uh, and, and I think what I, what I might say is, you know, the challenge Ed, is that what urbanists want is really nothing to do with AVs at all. They want, better pedestrian infrastructure. They want protected bike and e-bike lanes. Frankly, the e-bikes and e-cargo bikes are the types of technology that quote unquote urbanists are most excited about, period. So the unfortunate reality, Ed, may be that, that urbanists just frankly don't care about what you're offering. They don't see it as nearly as compelling as other types of technology or form factors that's out there. That can change. And maybe people like you can help adjust that perspective, but I'm not sure it's on people who live in cities or want to see cities improve to sort of come to a given technology and sort of help shape it when they frankly see transit or e-bikes or just simply better sidewalks as a more compelling path forward. I I support all those things. And almost everyone I know uh, who lives down here, well, a strong majority of people want uh, less traffic, bike lanes, protected bike lanes, uh, sidewalks, and better transit. Some of those things can be done in a near term or midterm, and some would take a very long time because building transit in Miami is an operation. But you have a city whose like sociopolitical um, landscape. Um, well, actually, no. Let's be really clear: the, the distribution of the population and jobs in the city would make it very <laughs> would make it um, a nice place to add all those things. And AVs. And if you ask almost anyone on the ground here, they'll say, well, we're never going to get a train here, but I'd sure love to have uh, an alternative, a bus uh, or something else. And then they say that the next thing they say is, well, there's a shortage of buses, there's a shortage of drivers. I go to Overtown, talk to people in Overtown. You know what they say? We have budget for private uh, bus service. There's no drivers. Like, do you have an alternative? And there is an option. That's an autonomous bus. So. I would say we need all those things and any AV company that is not supportive of holistic solutions and inserting their technology into holistic solution is does just doesn't care. Doesn't really care. 
You know who I'm talking about, first and foremost. It's the so guys dude, who want to build the tunnels. So I want to... I want to move to because I think like the frustrating thing about about the hype uh, around AVs is that like there are so many problems in the real world right now with with transportation and and oftentimes like the hype kind of especially when it keeps getting pushed out that like it feels like we're not actually dealing with stuff in the in the near term. So I want to talk about the the rise in um in uh, in traffic deaths that we've seen in the last few years. Why why are why are more people dying on the roads? Ah, that's uh, and now for something completely different. Um, <laughs> I have I have a theory. Do you want to go first, Zipper? Because you got you have a well thought out answer. I got a one word answer. What's your one word answer, Mister Roy? Nihilism. <laughs> we believe in. I'll just heavier, bigger cars. Nihilism and and I, say and, what and, you will about the tenets of car culture, dude. At least it's an ethos. I'm a car guy. I've been a car guy my whole life. Um, but uh, there's no question that. COVID lockdowns, since COVID lockdowns, there's been a peculiar nihilism um, uh, and people are taking greater risks and showing a less empathy. I, I, maybe this is anecdotal in me, my perspective on the world, um, but that's what I believe I see. Maybe maybe it's just you're projecting your own experience. I'm a, I'm a, I don't believe I'm a nihilist at all. Um, uh, that's good. I'm glad. By the exactly. way, I mean, the word nihilism, I can't help but think of Big Lebowski. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I think about too. Uh, uh, I, I'm a huge optimist uh, and believer in the general goodness of humans, given correct information and uh, a free uh, environment in which to discuss it. In the absence of those things, you get worse choices over time, and then you have, of course, the last few years. David, unpack it for us as. as According to what you see, so Alex, I'll actually say this is. I, I think that uh, you are reflecting sort of like the consensus position in this country right now, and I think it's wrong, or I think Bring it, it yep. is largely incomplete. Okay, say. Um, and first, I think, but just to sort of like underscore the the problem, um, you know, like deaths are way way up in this country. We've had. Uh, we had more people die, jotted some stats down, is that we had a 12% growth in traffic deaths year over year in the first nine months of 2021. And that was on top of a 7% increase in 2020. And obviously, people are driving less or were driving less during the pandemic. So if you look at this on a per mile driven basis, we're up year over year, I believe it was 24%. It was the highest increase since Calvin Coolidge was president, like 1924. Um, and so it's then, and in total numbers of deaths, we're looking at well over 40,000 now. So the old number that we've always heard of a hundred people dying a day is wrong. It's too low. We're actually significantly above that now. Now, so, and by the way, and, and who's frankly been dying the most, this has been a, frankly, we've been seeing deaths rise gradually for a while. What's spiking in terms of, of occupying a greater and greater share of the deaths are what are called vulnerable road users pedestrians, cyclists, people in wheelchairs. So what's going on? The common response, which I think Alex with his nihilistic uh, sort of perspective there uh, kind of reflects it to say, oh, well, people are going crazy during COVID. They're more risk-taking. They're not wearing seatbelts. They're being nuts. And the big reason why I think that is incomplete is other countries are not experiencing our spike in deaths. Traffic deaths are down across the European Union. They're down in Japan and Korea. They're down in Canada. 
So if you want to argue that COVID is making people drive crazy, you have to have an explanation for how it is that COVID somehow manages to just make Americans drive crazy and not the rest of the world. And I'm not convinced of that. So I, if we're going to talk about longer term trends, there's a couple of things going on. Kirsten, you already referenced the larger SUVs and trucks and the shift away from sedans toward SUVs and trucking. That's a good point. But I'll tell you what I personally would emphasize. If we're talking about what, what really led to a spike on top of a baseline of growth over the last couple of years, how about this? We've, we've designed, especially compared to Europe and Japan and, and even Canadian urban areas, we've designed our country in the United States with roads and streets that accommodate car speed. If you don't have a lot of traffic, you can drive pretty freaking fast throughout almost all of the United States, especially compared to urban areas in Europe and in East Asia. So maybe it is, and I'll put this out there, without the traffic because of lockdowns, people are driving really, really freaking fast, or they were. And that leads to a more, basically you could say that we have designed our cities and our, our urban areas to enable reckless driving, which wasn't possible when we had traffic. But now with, with COVID, we actually uh, took a lot of those cars away. And lo and behold, you end up with the dangerous infrastructure sort of uh, laid bare for what it is. I'm not saying I have proof for this, but it would at least explain perhaps why it is that the U.S. is so bad right now for traffic death trends compared to the rest of the developed world. That, so the, the, the speed, the speed um, theory has has cropped up a bunch. Actually, um, I've seen that around. I would add one other item there. The roads. It's not just speeding, Kirsten. I have to emphasize this. It's how we've designed our roads to enable speeding. But hold on sure. a minute. Did did our infrastructure change? No, but there's uh, okay. just less so, traffic. So when I say nihilism, I'm referring to nihilism applied to that infrastructure as a result of political and cultural events like COVID, which accelerates, would, the, accelerates the negative uh, outcomes of the exact problem you described, which I agree with. I would add one other layer, um, and it's about infrastructure, which is the lack of what I would call protective infrastructure. So one of the most common ways pedestrians and bicyclists are hit is what's called the, the right hook, which is um, happened to a few people I know. You're sitting on a bike, a, dri a driver rides up next to you, and um, they roll through the right-hand stop without looking. Um, it's really common, and it's a way that bicyclists and pedestrians are clipped all the time. And I've started to see little experiments around an infrastructure where um, the bike lane in the right-hand turn is protected, but nowhere else um, or other things because, because of this issue. Because what happens is they're taking a right-hand turn and just flowing right into the bike lane or just plowing through the, uh, the sidewalk or the um, crosswalk. So there is there are ways to remodel the infrastructure at intersections <laughs> to help prevent pedestrian and, and bicycle deaths. But um, right now they're like little pilots and, and, you know, they're not widespread at all. 
And meanwhile, you have these other pieces that David was talking about. Well, I think we're saying the same thing, Kirsten. I totally agree with you. And to me, if you can... You can modify, though. There are ways to modify the existing infrastructure, is my point, to like eliminate what are very, very common deaths, which is in crosswalks or right at right-hand turns or protected on uh, lefts where people aren't watching um, as someone's crossing the street. Like that's... That would eliminate, I think, a lot of the pedestrian and bicycle deaths. Uh, I I agree. I, I think, um, yeah, and you see a lot of that infrastructure that you're describing, Kirsten, in European cities. Um, and I think that when you overlay, when you imagine sort of someone biking or walking on a street with like in in some of these European cities like a Paris or Berlin without much car traffic compared to what you might experience without much car traffic. If you're trying to bike in Los Angeles or, uh, or even in Portland, Oregon, in some places it's, uh, you can imagine which one feels a little bit more dangerous or in some cases, a lot more dangerous. I have a question for David. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Alex. David, I guess going back to my teens as someone who grew up in a car fan, car centric family, the thing that I, I don't understand why. Why do you think there aren't vastly harsher penalties for dangerous driving? And I, I, so, with someone who's had a D, if someone has a DUI, they kill a cyclist. I mean, what is it like? What prevents the creation of laws with harsher penalties around dangerous driving? Yeah, bring out the book. So, yes, I just got a book. I'm going to show. Of course, this is a podcast recording, so no one can see that I just reached for a book, but I did. Okay. Um, I, I think that in the United States, we're such a car-oriented culture that that um, the that we, both the public and especially the police, sort of identify with somebody who is driving and strikes a pedestrian or a cyclist. Like, oh, they made a mistake. Like we could all make a mistake. Even if you were drinking, oh, I've been behind the wheel when I've had a couple of drinks, maybe more than I should. And there's this sort of level of identification that's unconscious almost that allows for a relatively light penalty in those situations. And I, I got to say, so, which I hate, obviously, and we shouldn't be that way. But I have to say, Alex, I'm not sure that the, the solution is to crack down like a total ton of bricks off of anybody who makes a mistake um, or strike someone, uh, when driving or drives recklessly, like they should be penalized. But what I'm, and especially if you have a pattern of reckless driving, you shouldn't have a license in my view at all. But what I'd most like to see is regularity of penalties. For example, automatic enforcement, which is, um, illegal in States like Texas now, where you have red light cameras or, or speed cameras. Those are widespread across Europe. And that way, you know, basically breaking the law by speeding or driving recklessly, you're not sort of like tempting fate of whether or not a police might might catch you. You're basically knowing you're going to get a ticket in the mail. And that's actually can lead to real benefits for safety. Um, and the book that I reached for that just came out a few weeks ago, and I think it's really compelling in this. Have you guys heard about There Are No Accidents by Jesse Singer? Yes. It's yeah. been all over the internet. Yeah, yeah. she's cool. Yeah, she's. Done, I interviewed her at City Lab for it. It's been all bouncing around. I'm really happy for her. Um, she's been working at a transportation advocacy group in New York for a while, transportation safety advocacy group called Transportation Alternatives. But her basic premise of the book is to say, look, 
the idea of an accident is fundamentally flawed. It's, it's, um, if we really want to reduce the number of inadvertent deaths, which are spiking in this country, by the way, and way higher than in other countries, uh, we need to look for systemic solutions and not just blame the person behind the wheel or the person who didn't follow the drug, the prescription they were given by the doctor, what have you. I think it's a real, it's a very easy read and an interesting read. Um, and for folks who are interested, again, it's There Are No Accidents by Jesse Singer, and I recommend it. So I know we're getting late in the the show here, not a ton of time. So maybe this is a little bit of a big one to to crack open. But I have to ask you since you're here, because it's it's just something I've been uh, thinking a bit about because there's been this huge debate about, right? Like, you know, the role of human error versus the role of infrastructure. And and as a believer in the sort of systems approach, I think there's clearly areas in, you know, all over the place where we can make um, some improvements. But, um, you know, one of the things, like, there are definitely some people who who emphasize, and I kind of put you in this camp, like the infrastructure approach, which I agree, like, on a systemic level, it's a huge piece of the puzzle. It's really, really important. My question, though, is, why in this country have we also been so have have those infrastructure focused initiatives kind of not been that effective? And and you mentioned Portland. I live in Portland. We're one of a number of cities that's had a, a you know number of ways through a, a, a Vision Zero plan that's very infrastructure focused, and we're seeing death spike here as well. We're not seeing the impact of of those infrastructure improvements on top of, and by the way, there was a Vision Zero plan. And then on top of that, during COVID, there was the safe streets thing, which are all great. And I love it. And it's awesome. I'm definitely not arguing against it. But like when you look at the results, they're not there in terms of reducing deaths. I'm curious what, how, how you explain that. Um, or, or yeah, how, how, how do you view that? I'm, I'm actually working on an article, a deep dive into exploring exactly that and why Vision Zero has been is so disappointing in this country. So maybe that'll come back. If you, if you're allowed to have something back for a fourth, <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's a that. worthy topic for, for a, a full discussion. Is. Yeah, it is. Like, and for those who may not be aware, like, um, you know, like Oslo had zero traffic deaths last year. Um, whereas, you know, Austin and Portland, as Ed was saying, um, you know, they set new records for deaths, even though they're both vision zero cities. So it's a complicated question why we're getting it wrong or why what's going wrong. Um, it ha- there's a lot happening there. Part of it is systemic. Part of it has to do with bad infrastructure. Part of it has to do with cars getting heavier and taller, which Kirsten referenced a few minutes ago. Um, but part of it is that you know our, our infrastructure moves haven't gone nearly as far as they should, even in places like Portland, I would argue. And my my and i'm still sort of like shaping my own perspective on this which will come out i think this article will be out in a couple of weeks so it'll be a pretty long one i expect it seems that there's a habit in the united states of supporting traffic safety in the abstract and not in the particular in other words i'm happy to stand up on a podium if i'm a mayor and say we are a vision zero city and this is a national crisis or a city crisis and we have to address this but it's another matter if you're asking me to basically tell some people in a particular community, I don't care that you prefer to have parking spaces on both sides of this public street. We're building a protected bike lane because otherwise people will die. Get over it. It's a different matter. And um, and it's a lot harder to do the latter in this country. And we frankly have struggled, even though we frankly know what it would take in what are known as high injury corridors. Um, to or high crash corridors to actually really make a serious serious progress on the infrastructure side. 
So I, that's a that's a partial answer to a very important and complicated question. And Alex is like waving at us. Alex actually apparently can solve this question, so I should yield the floor to him. I can't solve it, but in the spirit of what you're saying, and also um, some folks who are like, what, the tactical urbanists, like Tony Garcia, and some other great folks, um, right in front of my apartment in Brickell, I face uh, the water, Brickell Bay. There is a thing called the Rickenbacker Causeway. It's about, I think it's three or four miles long, and then it leads to Virginia Key and uh, Key Biscayne. On Virginia Key is, I think, the largest um, park with uh, bike uh, trails, which hundreds, if not thousands of people use every weekend. But to get to those bike trails, you have to ride across the Rickenbacker Causeway, um, where traffic is driving 50 to 70 miles an hour. And there is a bike lane that is not protected. And And the number of people I've heard, uh, the white bikes, you know, the the uh ghost bikes, bikes they're called the ghost bikes, yeah, yeah ghost bikes um and the, how many people tell me that they would love to ride there but um they won't ride in that causeway and now they have they have to drive and they have to buy a bike rack for their car and then when they get there the parking lot's full like talk of, i mean talk about just a, just counter like what i don't even know what the word is it's like um it's like a anti-citizen like policy it's like it's just yeah. everything is aligned to prevent the people who live here from enjoying their city in around and in that in that instance and there are good people in government here um there's some really good people who understand this and i would like to see that unlocked in a meaningful way uh, and, and one more thing about this key biscayne the is mostly uh public parks and i'm glad that they are and that's because uh i forget the guy's name a guy lobbied to make sure that it never became condos, that it was a public park forever because there was a plan to make it into condos and it wasn't. And public parks are one of the last things that I mean, we really need to protect those. So the people, all people can enjoy nature fairly, but they have to be able to do so safely or it's pointless. So um, one of the things I've seen pop up and I've seen it happen in Tucson <clears throat> is the in, and David, you probably have some insight into this, but there will be a 40-year master plan for a city, you know, for a road project. And this is happening in Tucson right now. Yeah. And it seems as if they're paralyzed or unable to change that master plan to, you know, A, be more potentially more pragmatic about things, but also reflect the desires of the people who are living today, not the desires of the people uh, who put together the master plan 40 years ago. And so the way I've seen this play out in my own city is that um, they wanted to straighten and make a corridor faster for traffic, right? To keep the traffic flowing faster. So they eliminated the ability to make uh, left-hand turns in intersections. Instead, you have to go and do that. Uh, I think they call it the Michigan sling, where it's like a it goes through the intersection and they widened it and straightened it. And it's this beautiful, gorgeous road. And then because the city also has a um, rule about any improved road has to have bike lanes. They added bike lanes to now a corridor that has three lanes of traffic on either side and people are going 50 miles an hour. And then next to that, they have sidewalks and this sort of, 
a, you know, away from the road, this lovely little trail for pedestrians only. Now imagine if they had adjusted for the um, increase in e-bikes, bikes, and scooters, not put the bike lane on the road in which people are going 50 miles an hour and had it on one side of the road away, like just like where the pedestrians are. They were unable to adjust this plan, even though there was space for the plan. And to me, that is just, it's not to knock necessarily like every city official out there, but it's like, why are we today taking on plans that were created oftentimes decades before, and they're in no way reflective of the way people want to live today? Yeah. And we also just know more about crashes involving people on bikes or scooters, e-bikes, kinds of devices that frankly didn't exist a decade ago, right? A lot of them. Um, right. and, and you're right, Kirsten, the, there's a lot of evidence showing that, hey, guess what? Physics is right. That, you're, that the, the real severe you know, injuries and deaths involving uh, people who are walking or biking or using a scooter involve basically someone who is on a relatively light vehicle going at relatively slow speed, coming in contact with a much, much bigger vehicle get, that is going much, much faster. You want to sort of group together entities that are creating relatively similar amounts of force. And that flies in the face of exactly what you're describing here with, you know, having people be biking al alongside uh, cars and increasingly SUVs and trucks that are going 50 miles an hour. So we need protected bike lanes for the reasons you're describing. And I think we've only come relatively recently to realize that sharrows are totally pointless. People know those little sort of painted arrows on a road, utterly pointless. Painted bike lanes are not infrastructure and protected bike lanes are actually the way to keep people safe, especially if there's something that is not a flex post, but something that actually could damage a car if they come in contact with the barrier. That's what we ultimately need. And to be honest, even in some of our most bike friendly cities, I live in one, Washington, D.C., which is pretty good by national standards. We have a long way to go. And to be on, and then to connect this with Alex's point about about Miami's inadequate uh, bike network, maybe this is something on a sort of since we've been criticizing a lot. I can end things on a more upbeat note by bringing in an example that I love from Italy. Actually, I, mean, I don't speak Italian, so I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. But in cities like Florence and Milan, they've adopted these master plans for bike lanes that are called BC Politanas, which translates as bike subways. And if you look at it, these maps look like a subway network where you have like a thick route, go, like an arterial that's going into the uh, it looks like a highway network, actually, uh, like a thick route going into the heart of the city. And you've got feeder routes that are that are less thick. What? What these Italian cities are doing, I think, is so smart, which is to recognize that to Alex's point, it's not enough to have a pleasant bike path or a bike lane to really enable biking to be a way to, to, to of transportation and not just recreation. You need to have a network of safe routes to get around your, your, or your city or your region. And I love this idea of thinking of, of bike lanes as as sort of like a street network or a highway network or a subway network. And that's what Italy is moving toward. And I would love to see more American cities recognize that this is actually how you compel more people to bike 
and by helping them feel safe. And by the way, the people who are going to start biking more when you do that, especially are going to be women. There's a lot of statistics showing that once you get over an 8% mode share of, of all trips being by bike, it's women who suddenly just flock to biking. And by the way, there's not a single city in this country that has 8% mode share, not even Portland, which is number one in the country. To, to so put a bow just, on just this, to, oh, go ahead. Sorry, just to very, very briefly add one thing. I would take it a step further in terms of like having the, you know, the protected bike lanes and really challenge cities to be thinking of not even just like the form factor, but what makes most sense in building, like you said, these corridors, because Tucson actually has a lot of bike lanes, a ton of them. They're, they're one of the higher rated cities in the country for bike lanes. And we even have an entire loop that goes around the entire city in which there are no vehicles, but getting in the middle of the city to those commuters, if you want to get to the coffee shop downtown and you take the river path, then guess what? You're adding 30 minutes to your ride if you don't want to be around cars. Bike lanes seem like a great idea, but when they're placed in like the busiest roads, no one's going to use them. And instead saying, hey, do your... Basically what's happening is a city planning, it's like it's butting up against what they think is a really good law to add bike lanes. And it's like a good intention, but it's it's not effective in terms of how it's being you know, initiated because they're not being flexible about what makes sense in this place. So even protected bike lanes wouldn't even make sense in the one scenario I said before. Instead, they should go to all that land they have and create this beautiful path in which there is literally no cars around them. It's that type of thinking that I would I want cities to see, especially when they're reconstructing roads and making it easier for traffic. They need to be really thinking creatively about how do you build out these corridors or subways, so to speak, to improve like short commutes? Yeah, to, to put a bow on this, I, I think because personal experience proves David absolutely right here. So in Portland, we have what's called bike highways. And basically, they're just non-arterial streets that have been designated as sort of bikes first and cars avoid them. It's local traffic only. And you do get these conduits all through the east side of Portland. And it's really easy to get around. And I'll tell you, between uh, getting e-bikes and and starting to use those my partner who like grew up in the country and is not was not comfortable riding a bike in a city has like totally transformed her entire perspective i have rediscovered my love of biking and like we don't use a car in a city in the city almost at all unless it's like really really heavy rain and we're like going to costco or you know things like that and so i think david's absolutely right like i'm as much of a i have some pretty solid car guy credentials i like to think but like i and i love the fact that i don't have to use a car in the city because it it just doesn't work well and a good e-bike with good infrastructure uh is just a, an amazing thing it really changes how you think about getting around with that we have this we could keep going endlessly because it's always so much fun to talk with David Zipper, but we do have to let him go and we do all have to go back to the various things we have to do. Uh, so uh, any, any final thoughts, David, uh, David's on Twitter at David Zipper. Is that right? Uh, anything else you want to, you want to plug before we run? No, it's just sort of funny that we ended up talking about e-bikes in this way. Cause I literally just like an hour ago published an article in city lab about why we need to treat e-bikes and e-cargo bikes as vehicles, not as playthings. So if you're curious about that part of the conversation, maybe check out that article. It's that and other things that I've written are at uh, www.davidzipper.com. Uh, actually, I got to say one more thing. And I, uh, I like that, that article, which I began reading um, just as we started recording today. 
when e-bikes become, they might be too cheap. They need to become aspirational things like, um, like a, so the Supreme brick or like a sweater, like something that people just have to have because e-bikes they're cool. Expensive. E-bikes are expensive. They, they, they're still too cheap. More expensive and then come down in price. They should have launched way more expensive uh, it, because there's something psychological weird. Why do people buy Teslas instead of Nissan Leafs? They don't need right, them. But that, that's the <laughs> point. My God, I can't believe you're arguing for that because I, if you want to make this is this should be meant for people not to have fancy play things. Oh, I, play I totally get it. But here's what I'm observing in Miami. A lot of people who should have e-bikes are buying internal combustion cars. But people I know with a lot of money are starting to advocate for e-bikes a lot and ride them and never drive. And that leads to this peculiar aspirational psychology where then it becomes a thing you have to have, like a Louis Vuitton bag. Um, And then it becomes cheaper. And there's something about human psychology, about scarcity, which then leads to scale and well, that's another episode. Maybe we should get Tom Goodwin on the show to discuss that aspect. All right, I, I'm done. I feel like we're going to have to to just uh, uh, wrap this up and, and yeah. fight about this issue because I definitely disagree, but we'll, we'll have to fight about that. Yeah, I want to say marketing and human psychology. We agree that the product is critical. We agree. And, and we will discuss that more on a future episode of the Atonicast. Thanks for tuning in. Cut that